Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I am your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. Today's guest is Steve Magnus. Steve Magnus is someone who I've followed for quite some time, and uh, he has definitely influenced both my training and racing as well as coaching approaches throughout the years. So I was really excited to get him on the podcast and chat about some of that stuff. For those of you unfamiliar, Steve is got a lot going on. He's a, an author of a few books. They are Do Hard Things, Peak Performance, The Passion Paradox, and The Science of Running. Uh, he's a performance coach. He works with athletes, entrepreneurs, executives, as well as serves as consultants on mental skill development for professional sports teams. He's the co-creator of the growth equation, which is an online platform dedicated to understanding and practice of performance and well-being. He also hosts or co-hosts a couple of podcasts. They're the growth equation podcast and on coaching podcast where he's joined by Jonathan Marcus. If you're interested check out any of that stuff. It's all worth your time. His most recent book is Do Hard Things, which is one of the topics that we talked about today, as well as his training methodology, things like uh, where is the line that we should draw with all the different like technology and gadgets we have available to us now? When is it appropriate to maybe push a little harder or even just how do you define hard as it becomes individual in terms of dedicating what you're going to do with your time and energy in terms of your pursuits and things like that. We also talk about a variety of other things, including just his training methodology in general, as well as an article that he wrote in the Atlantic that uh, dives into just categorization of sports and kind of why we have those there and what he sees kind of maybe the potential outcome of all of that. So I hope you enjoy this one. I had a blast talking with Steve uh, I would definitely consider it one of the goal guests that I've been able to get on the podcast going forward. Before we get rolling, though, there are a few episodes that have not been released yet that I just recently put up on the show Patreon page. Those include an interview I did with Christian Morgan. And Christian Morgan was an interesting guest because he's what I would call a, a like a long trail uh, ultra marathon runner where he's done things that are like really like really lengthy. So he's got the second fastest time on the Appalachian trail, which is over 2000 miles. And it was his, I think, I believe his time was like 44 days, four hours and 54 minutes or something like that. So imagine that like being out there for, you know, well past a month time, just chipping away at this 2000 plus mile trail, had him on to talk about just his experience with that. Cause he's done it more than once and he's heading back out soon to do another attempt and I'm always interested in that when you do something that's that big, doubling down and doing it again or multiple times, because it's just like you sort of have this thing where it's a huge project, you know, it is, you know, there's going to be uncertainties and things like that. But if you've done it already, you've sort of faced the demon, so to speak, and you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. And sometimes that little bit of like lack or ignorance is bliss, I think early on in some of these big projects or the first time with some of these things can be sort of helpful to get you to, you know, actually believe you can do it uh, to some degree. So it was kind of cool to talk to Christian about his stuff as well as some of the other kind of long trail folks out there that are doing things like the Appalachian Trail. That one is up on the show Patreon page for those of you interested in getting at it a little earlier before it gets released on all podcast platforms. 
Also up on there is the podcast episode I did with Dwayne Scotty. Dwayne is a physical therapist, therapist and PhD. He is really interesting in terms of uh, really helping out runners find a path forward that is going to both allow them to continue to enjoy this sport and avoid injury, or if you're injured, kind of get back to the activity you love. One stat he shared on the podcast episode that I, I kind of knew, but was you know continually surprised by is like nine out of 10 runners get injured at some point. So it's almost a question of if not when. And he wanted to kind of share his six steps to grow as a runner to hopefully make yourself more likely to be that one out of 10, or hopefully if his message gets out, reduce that, 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 or that injury rate that we see with runners, or if you're already injured, what are some things to maybe consider to kind of make sure that that doesn't happen again, once you get back to going. So that one's also up on the show Patreon page. If you're interested in getting it early, you can head over there and do that. For those interested, the show Patreon page is a way to both support the Human Performance Outliers podcast, as well as get the podcast episodes early and ad-free. So how that works is I upload the audio of the podcast episode as soon as we get done recording, and it just gets right to the topic, no intro, no no advertisements, no anything like that. So if you want access to that and you want to support the show at the same time, head over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. That will give you the links to get over there. That is also the show landing page. So what that has there is other support options that are available if you don't want to join Patreon, as well as just the catalog of all the episodes that I've done previously. So if you want to get a look at some of the episodes and, and pick some that maybe are interesting to you, it's a great spot to check some stuff out and get the details and links for all those at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO. Also, if you are wanting to meet up and go for a run with me, I host a group run Sunday mornings in Austin, Texas. So if you're either from Austin or close to Austin or happen to be visiting Austin, swing on by. It's an all comers, all abilities, all welcome type of atmosphere. We actually currently have two start options, one at 8 a.m., which tends to be a little bit of a smaller group and 9 a.m., which usually is a little bit of a bigger group. And we do a few different distances all paces are welcome, whether you're a walker or a runner, you can bring a stroller, you can bring a bike, you can bring your dog. We try to make it as inclusive as possible there. And yeah, so check out details from week to week stuff on Instagram at outliersATX for details about that. We meet at Metz Park in Austin, Texas. Also, if you are interested in getting some support with coaching and training, I have a bunch of options for you from pre-made plans to one-on-one -on -one work with me that you can scale up all the way to very frequent contact. You can find details to that on my website at zachbitter.com. Finally, before we get rolling with Steve, quick shout out to one of the primary show sponsors this year's LMNT Electrolytes. LMNT makes these really convenient little packets that have a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium. And they come in multiple flavors, cold beverage and warm beverage op options. I like the chocolate in my coffee in the morning before I'm heading out for a run and some of the more fruity flavors while I'm out there doing workouts, especially when it gets a little bit warmer here in the summers. 
uh, during races, I'll mix that in with uh, my water to make sure I'm getting the right concentration of electrolytes and water. For me, uh, based on my sweat test, I lose 614 milligrams of electrolytes for every liter of fluid loss. So I try to blend mine to match that. If you are interested in checking it out, they are currently doing a promotion where you get a free sample pack with your first purchase. So what that allows you to do is try out all their options and find out is there one or two maybe that you really like better than the others and is worth adding to your training or racing routine. And uh, to get that, all you got to do is let them know that you came from here, which is just going to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. Links to that are also in the show notes, as well as the show sponsor page, which is just zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm here with Steve Magnus. Steve, thanks for taking some time and coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, you know, I I have to just give you and I guess Rich Roll a plug before we get rolling here because I listened to that episode uh, in preparation for this and thought you guys did both a, both did an amazing job, kind of like laying out your background, um, your experience with the Nike Oregon Project, and kind of everything that kind of brought you to where you are today. So. Um, hopefully we can add to some of that content here and then I can just push everyone over to that podcast too, to check it out and kind of get a little bit more of a detailed deep dive into your history and things like that. If, um, if they're open to it, cause I think it's such, it was such a well done episode. Well, I appreciate that. And you know, it's more rich than me. Rich is a pro. He, he can have conversations and, you know, more than that, I think there's, there's also something comforting talking to whether it's rich or yourself. It's, I feel like when endurance athletes get together, we can just have good conversations. So it's uh, really looking forward to this one too. Yeah. You can just geek out. And I think um, my, my uh, other plug will be for the listeners to definitely, if they have not already check out the science of running uh, one of your books that I think just does an amazing job of laying out just, in a way that you can understand if you're not, you know, a scientist like myself, just kind of like, what are some of the physiological things going on when it comes to endurance sport, as far as we know, where some of the misconceptions have been in the past and what we've learned and kind of see that trajectory. And then also kind of transition into just laying out just, all right, now that we're there, we're coaches, we're athletes, when the rubber hits the road, what do we actually do from a programming standpoint? And that coupled with your podcast with Jonathan Marcus, um, I believe it's just called Magnus and Marcus on coaching. Uh, I think your book and that podcast pair so well together. I was binging on that, on some of those episodes uh, before, before today as well. So I feel like I've done, done some homework on that. (laughs) I appreciate that. You know, that all that is, is, is nerding out. Like Uh I love, I love running. I love the science of it. I could talk all day about it. And it's just a lot of fun. You know, I wrote that book, gosh, I don't know, eight, nine years ago now, Mm -hmm. And it really, you know, all it was, was I had all this science stuff that I'd I'd done in grad school, but never utilized because Mm -hmm. I switched my thesis. So I had, I had about a hundred pages of like in-depth, like here's how the science of running works. Thesis level stuff. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And it, it, it just sat there and I didn't use it because I switched my topic. And then, you know, after a couple of years of sitting there, I'm like, you know what? 
I need to do something about it. So I just reworked it all. And that's what became the science of running. So it's, it's kind of weird how life sometimes works itself out. Yeah, no kidding. That is interesting. Yeah, we live in an era now where like you should just hang on any content you have because at some point it might be valuable. <laughs> exactly. It's like content is king. So yeah, you know, you never know when it's going to come back and be useful. Is, is there anything in that book that you would say now you're like, if I could go back and rewrite it, I would maybe change this from just the evolution of what we know uh, from the science side of running or had did you feel like at that point? you had us at least the outlook pretty much spot on? I mean, I think there's always stuff that you could change. I mean, when I was writing that I had, it was my first book. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know the process. I was just amateur hour totally. So <laughs> I, I think I would refine it a little bit, whether that's from a grammar standpoint or a flow standpoint or what have you. I think there's a lot of that, that, that now as an experienced writer, I could, look at as far as the science there's some things that have have maybe we have a better understanding on so <laughs> whether that's some of the biomechanic stuff or some of even some of the nutrition stuff although i didn't talk about nutrition that much but i think more on in regards to um for instance marathoning and like manipulating uh nutrition for adaptations and in, in training i think I, I i would cover more so so i'd say on the whole, I don't think anything in there is wrong, I think. But in the eight, nine years since it's come out, we've got better data, better understanding, maybe a little bit more clarity, um, which maybe one day I'll I'll get the, the motivation to update it. Well, Do not today, edition. but yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but at some point, maybe. Yeah, well, wait, wait for another major thing to change and then you might be. <laughs> it, it, exactly. Yeah, the the new marathon nutrition thing is marathoning in general is so interesting to me because I mean people think of me as an ultra runner for obvious reasons, but like, uh, I mean I'm gonna I guess pivot a little bit here, but I think like some people there's a fascination I think with people from fine tuning a specific distance over the course of years versus a mentality of like well I did the five k now ten k I did the ten k now half and then they just kind of like they get this like grandiose of volume kind of a mindset where it's like, it gets harder as it gets longer, where in reality, I think personally, as far as difficulty goes, you can't get much more, more like, I think blended in difficulties and you can with a marathon at the elite level. I mean, especially when you start getting into like the low two hours with where, where the Olympians are heading with that, like just the perfect balance of both duration and intensity where like if you make a mistake you are going to suffer for a long time at that intensity and it is a fine line and then when you just look at just where you see like some of these elites pushing essentially like almost up to their their lactate threshold for a good portion of like two hours whereas you know the average person's maybe going to get 60 minutes out of that type of a an effort it just like boggles your mind in terms of like the protocols that are going to be required to kind of both put yourself in a position to be able to do that in the first place, but then fuel it on top of it with that level of intensity for that duration. Yeah, it's really this this fascinating kind of distance. And that's why I love talking about it and love coaching it is <laughs> you the gap between like the 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 wiggle room to have something go wrong is getting smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. right and you mentioned it right there it's like almost the lactate the, the gap between marathon pace and lactate threshold at that elite level is like minuscule right mm -hmm. you know for 
novices or even going back 30, 40 years ago, like you had a little space where it's like, uh, like, <laughs> you know, if I get my pacing a little bit wrong or going back to, I don't know, the Frank Shorter days, like, you know, as long as I take some, drink some flat Coke during it, like <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be all right. And I think now we're in this spot where it's like, there's, there's very little margin for error on all sides. And that's where I think it, it, I'm just astonished and amazed by athletes like Elliot Kipchoge, who, you know, you look at his marathon record of like, I don't know, 18, 19 marathons. And he's essentially had one subpar marathon during that entire career. And that subpar was still like a 207, 208 marathon. <laughs> but everything else has been like crush, crush, win, win, win. And, and, and to see that is just astonishing because, you know, I'll give a story actually. When I, the first athlete I ever coached to the marathon uh, was Sarah Hall. Mm-hmm. And Sarah had come to me and said, you know, first through the steeplechase, we started working together. Her husband, Ryan, was still competing. And then she goes, you know what? I want to move to the roads and try them out. And when she had a lot of success, we were dabbling between track and roads. She had some good success at the half marathon. This is way back, maybe 2015. And then she says, all right, I want to run my first marathon. And I'm like, okay, I've never coached a marathon or I was more on the track focus set then. So I sat down with Ryan. We have all these conversations. Like we're like tag teaming, like the training and stuff like that. <laughs> and I think it's going really well. And leading into our first marathon, Ryan's getting excited. And he's like, Sarah's going to crush it. Like she's, her workouts are so good that like, I think she can set the American debut record. And in my head, I'm like, well, if Ryan Hall's telling me this, like it must be true because he knows the marathon. Yeah. And we, we get to the LA marathon. She goes out, everything's great. Then at like mile 17, 18, just complete fall apart. Just <laughs> goes from running, I don't know, sub 230 pace, ends up running, I don't know, 245 or something like just blows up. And that's the marathon at the mm-hmm. uh, at the high level. And that's why it's like, Sarah was phenomenal shape. I saw it like Ryan Hall, one of the best marathon there's in history is telling me this. And you get that, that line a little bit wrong. And even if you're in great shape, like it just can go disastrously. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's like the fun of the challenge of it for me. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of, uh, your story kind of provided a good transition point, I think, into a topic that I'm interested in. And it was one, I believe you and Marcus talked about, um, a bit on one podcast and it was just this mentality of distance runners in the United States versus what we see internationally and you know a race like that that you described with about Sarah you have that sort of an experience I think in the U.S. running culture at least historically perhaps this is changing and perhaps Sarah is probably one of the reasons it would be if it is is like this idea of like okay you made a small mistake at a very elite, very fine razor's edge level. So we still know you're fit. We still know you're capable. Let's get back on the horse. And just like, before we throw out everything we did to prepare for this and, you know, decide that we failed, you know, just find the next spot and then go for it again and have a little bit more of a relaxed attitude about a bad race result versus it being like the end all be all. Um, Yeah. I'd love to hear your take on like that within like us distance running now, 
And if there's any signs of that maybe becoming kind of a little more of a, like, I guess the East African trend where they can seem to shake off a bad race and then, you know, show up down the road and just crush it and not, not be overthinking some of that stuff beyond what we sometimes do. Yeah. I'm glad you brought this up because the continuation of that Sarah Hall first marathon story is that three weeks later, she decides to run world cross country championships and gets like, you know, 19th or 20th, a really good finish for her after Mm -hmm. a really tough marathon. And I think that's what you're starting to see is we, you, you know, for years, especially, you know, when I was growing up and, and competing, the U S kind of had this idea of like, you know, you, it's essentially the race is the test. And if you fail the test, it yeah. means like you're not fit and you got to like go back to the drawing board, start the class all over again and, and wait for months to try again. And what, as you correctly put on out is often, if you look at the East Africans, you know, and Sarah brought this to me as well as she, she kind of put it one time when she was um, <laughs> talking about a East African, she saw a East African who was better than her in most races, just fall apart, have a horrible day. She talks to the East African after the, the race. And she said, um, the East African said, next time it will go better. I will set world record. <laughs> and, 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 you know, for, for Americans we're like, wait a minute, we'd be in our feels like yeah. what went wrong? Like, how do I bounce back? This is a disaster. Maybe I need to change coaching. And I think what you're seeing more often we're led by Sarah, but a bunch of athletes is the realization that sometimes things go wrong, but losing isn't the end all be all it's not self-defining. If we can get back on the horse and give ourselves another shot, often we can create some great things. And, I'd also argue that this used to be the style in America. If you looked at like uh, marathon greats like Bill Rogers or whoever, who would just, you know, get back on the horse, race a bunch and, and, you know, use their fitness. But I think for whatever reason, we kind of got into this spot of like almost protecting ourselves um, because, you know, who wants to see themselves fail and like, we take it personally and what have you, but the, the better tactic is like, lose well, and then like get back on the horse. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. And it brings me to actually another topic that I find really interesting. Just listen to you talking about this yesterday, actually, and it resonated me because I think about this a lot, just based on my own trajectory through the sport of running. And it is this like kind of global, national and local kind of lens that we sometimes view ourselves in throughout. And we're especially nowadays with social media and internet and things like that. You can be, if if you're a talented middle school runner, high school runner, you may have national international eyeballs on you. I think of myself at that age, like I didn't even know enough about running to have any clue as to what like a global expectation would be a national. I barely even knew what a state expectation would be until I was like midway through high school. So like, and and to me, it's like, you know, some people may look at them like, well, man, if you could have gotten started early, maybe you would have been able to do this. And the other thing I look at it, like if I taken it seriously at that age, you, I wouldn't be doing this. I would be living in Wisconsin doing whatever I would have been doing otherwise. Cause like, it's not that that would have been a horrible scenario, but it just would have been a different scenario. And I think it's a lot of that's just this access to like information and things like that, where, I mean, I was never good enough to be anywhere near an Olympic caliber runner. So had I ever thought that that was a potential or someone had put that seed in my head at an early age, it might've been so overwhelming that I gave up on the sport altogether versus kind of 
taken my experiences as they came and then ultimately find ultra running. And yeah, what are your thoughts about that? I, I think this is one of our biggest, you know, modern society problems is we've moved from a local world where like you, when I was in middle school, like I had no idea, like all I knew was like, here's how I compared to my buddies in PE class or yeah. in the, like your little area where you get the, the random track or cross country meets. I don't know what it, whether it was good or bad. And that was great because if I look at the times I was running back then, like if I compared them statewide or nationally, I would have thought I sucked because I didn't run comparatively that fast. But because, you know, the world was local, I could say, you know what, I'm pretty fast. I'm pretty good in the school. So I guess I'll keep doing this running thing. Mm -hmm. And I think now where the comparison can instantly jump to, well, nationally, this is how I compare. Or if I go on Instagram or Strava or whatever have you, it, it puts me right in the spot. That really dissuades us. And actually, there's some wonderful research that shows that if we look at um, kids or young athletes who uh, develop what they call fear of failure, where you're, you're no longer like doing it because like you enjoy it or striving to win. You're just like so paralyzed because you're like show up on the starting line and, and it's, well, what if I lose and you don't take risks, you don't push yourself. You don't find out how good you are because failure paralyzes. One of the biggest contributors to that is um, excessive expectations. And if you look at, okay, excessive expectations, where does that come from? Well, it comes from, seeing that we have so much information that you rank, you know, on X and there's thousands of people above you or what have you, because like now you're not competing against just the people in your school. You're competing against everybody in the, the world. Essentially, it would be like if instead of uh, class ranks, which suck enough in high school, you have not just class ranks, but like state ranks or, or national ranks on your GPA, like that would be horrible. Because like all of us would essentially feel insignificant because it's, it'd be near impossible to get anywhere near, you know, the top. So the thing is, again, in this world, I don't know the solution, but part of me says we've got to get a more, little bit more local, a little bit like stop the runaway comparisons that are um, unattainable. And if we do that, what happens? Well, it keeps people like yourself in the sport so that you can find where your interests and talents align with something like ultra running instead of quitting running, you know, in high school or college or whatever age, because like you weren't the fastest kid and we're never going to make the Olympics or whatever have you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I can't, it, it's almost like we need to have a, a, a secondary purpose for these sports that gets taught at an early enough age so that, you know, the, the kids who are there, and not going to be great at it. I thought, well, actually, maybe it's, you know, it's sort of a problem with the, this is more of the top of the top of the group, maybe problem at a really early age versus, you know, the kids who are getting, getting crushed by the competition in middle school and stick with it. They clearly found a purpose for it outside of the results where it is, you know, so maybe it's finding something or learning from them perhaps as to like, well, where's the value in it? And then start like, emphasizing that to everyone versus just them or oh, go ahead yeah no what i was gonna say is one of the best things you can do is go volunteer to watch your coach or like hang it whatever help 
at a uh, at a high school or middle school cross country team. And what you're going to see is like, yeah, I, like everybody wants to pay attention to the varsity kids or what have you. But go pay attention to like that JV G- junior or senior who's been doing the sport for three or four years mm-hmm. and see see why they keep doing it. Right. <laughs> and what inevitably happens is like you see you, you get reminded you're like, oh, this kid just like found joy in this process. Maybe it's because he's part of a team and likes, you know, or maybe it's because he found, you know, some purpose in working hard or doing mm-hmm. something where he feels Hey, I'm in control. I get to see how good I I can be, not anybody else. It doesn't matter. Or maybe it's the person who is the, you know, brings the the social, you know, cohesion to the team. But you inevitably find like some reason beyond like, oh, I'm really good at this and I get results and awards and accolades. And I think reminding ourselves of that, you know, can often bring a better, a, you know, motivational outlet because chances are like at some point we had the same kind of like, that's why we got into sport or whatever hobby is like, it wasn't because, you know, I'm going to get paid to do this or I'm going to, you know, win whatever award it's because like we enjoyed it for some other reason. And and often we kind of lose that. Um, And often if we're successful and there's data on this, we get even more pulled towards losing that and towards the shiny objects because we, we confuse that with the actual reason that we enjoy the sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's like, and I do see more of this now. It's like, even within like the, the top end of the field and ultra running where it's like this big questionable discover your why. And it's like your why probably shouldn't be to win every race you enter or even a race for that matter. Uh, obviously if your career depends on it, then there's some incentive there, but like, yeah, looking to the, looking to the the folks that are like paying to enter these races and training outside of their careers and things like that, I think are like very eye opening to see like, you know, what are they getting from this, that, that maybe I am, but not recognizing. Cause I've been like narrowing in on this, this very particular result oriented type outcome. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole world, especially when our performances matter, um, pushes us towards the outcome. And I'm not saying that like, hey, adopt a a Buddhist mindset of like outcomes never matter. Like for a lot of us, especially maybe if it's part of your career or what have you, like outcomes matter. But if the entire world is pulling us that direction, that means we need to do the work to counterbalance it. Mm -hmm. And I think far too often we don't and that means we get dragged to you know outcomes mattering 99% of the time instead of maybe they should have the 20% of our focus or whatever number you want to use Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting I do want to talk a bit about your most recent book uh, do hard things because when I saw that you wrote that book and saw the title um, my first thought was like Steve's the perfect guy to address this topic because we live in an interesting environment now where I think we have like this, again, access to so much information. You can binge on a David Goggins Instagram page and just really get motivated, go and crush a run or something like that and do something very hard. But then there's also like, what, what is after that? And where's the act? Like, where, how are we defining hard? And I'm thinking to myself, it's like, well, you know, Steve is in a situation where, you know, you were nationally if not internationally ranked at a high school level and essentially as i understand it 
found that that margin of diminishing returns in terms of how much hard things you can do and expect your body to actually respond positively to it. And, you know, having someone with that actual life experience kind of tell that story of doing hard things, I thought was probably a very good look into it. it was, what was it that really inspired you to kind of go that route with that book? Yeah, you know, you kind of hit the, the nail on the head there is um, we write the books that we kind of wrestle with and need. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, this was a book that I was wrestling with and needing because like all the way going back to high school, like you have that if, if you were to look at high school, Steve, he was certainly more in line with like David Goggins approach of world of like, just crush, like just train really freaking hard. But what you inevitably realize is that yes, hard work matters. Yes. Training hard and doing hard things matters. But at the same time, like it can lead you, it, it, it can lead you to this path where it's like, well, the returns have diminished or I'm just train I'm pushing myself into burnout and apathy and, and these negative things. So I wanted, you know, that was always in the back of my head. And then more recently, I kept seeing that, that again, not to call it out, but it's like that Goggins approach of like social media is like just telling us motivational stuff, motivational stuff. And it's like, that's great. It's good to get fired up. But at the same time, I want to understand the nuance and the how, which is like, you know, I can't go into a marathon and be like, I'm just going to put my head down and just like bulldoze through things because as any runner knows, I'm going to go through this highs and lows. I'm going to, I'm going to see a, a hole on the, the side of the road and think, man, what if I just stepped in that pothole? That would be great. And that, and that doesn't mean I'm weak. That means I'm human because yeah. like when you're going through those moments, like everybody thinks about quitting at some point. So instead of like creating this narrative of like, you know, never quit, like ignore your emotions, just push, push through everything. I wanted to have the nuanced conversation of like, okay, yeah, we need to take on challenges, but how do we get through them? Like, how do we develop the skills to do so? And, you know, this was my attempt to kind of provide some guidelines on, on just that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting too, cause like someone who sticks with something long enough and then if they do any self-reflection, they'll recognize like there's an evolution of hard across that, that timeline where what was hard for me when I first started running would be like, you know, almost off season level training at this point versus what I would do now in terms of trying to drive an actual stimulus, um, on top of decade, you know, a couple decades of running essentially. So like, I find that just an interesting, it's just an interesting topic as well, because of just the idea of like what is hard for one person may be impossible for another person at that moment in time, but given enough time, maybe not. And then finding that balance, which kind of kind of brings in just the whole training approach of uh, like stress stimulus and what adaptations are you actually looking for? Yeah, it's all relative. And, and, you know, I had a wonderful reminder of this not too long ago. I got um, <laughs> injured and had to take a long time off. And I remember, you know, my first run back, my first, I should say my first kind of like hard workout, which isn't hard. I was just doing like some up-tempo stuff. Mm -hmm. I remember like two or three minutes into it. I'm not running fast, but my brain is screaming at me to stop. And in my head, I'm like, this is so slow. Like I could do this, you know, a couple months ago, I could have done this having a full on conversation and eating a sandwich if I wanted to, but like hard gets shifted and that's okay. 
that's normal. And I think sometimes when we think hard, we think of the big challenges, but it's all relative. And, and honestly, in life, you know, if you take it outside of running, sometimes like the simplest things are the hardest thing. So for me, you know, and, and I don't know how it is for you, but like you have some following on social media and what have you. Well, one of the simplest but hardest and most important things that I do is learn how to put my phone down <laughs> and like, you know, turn social media off and not scroll. And yes, the act is easy, like just, you know, do it. But that's really freaking hard in today's world. So sometimes like those simple things, those daily items that, you know, in the grand scheme of things aren't that hard actually are. Um, so I guess the, the overall message is like, it's all relative and what's hard for you and me is different, but like start where you're at and like take the same principle of training to your life, which is like add a little bit of stimulus. We'll call it embarrass your body a little bit and, and grow from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect. And I think it's, it, it brings up a topic that I find really interesting too, which is just like the strengths and weaknesses of any given runner versus a different runner and how they may be quite polarizing from one person to the next and ultimately can maybe dictate both what is hard within the everything you're going to do to prepare for a given race and kind of how you end up coming up with that balance of, you know, where is hard enough at this given type of workout versus another one, which ones can I maybe lean into and on paper, maybe look more heroic to the average person versus something where it's like, well, I got to really start slow here. I might get injured or, or end up spending too much of my training load in one session where it takes from a future session and things like that. And one topic I heard you talking about was just this idea of like, we tend to get in this mindset and training methodology of like kind of compartmentalizing certain procedures into certain parts of the season, like off season, base building, like development and all this stuff that goes into like, and then ultimately like peaking for whatever distance you're doing. Obviously there's going to be an order of operations thing there where it's going to be dependent on the intensity of the race itself in most cases. But you brought up this topic of like, stop thinking of it as like this type of block of training is a hyper-focus on this one intensity or these two intensities, but rather we need to have a global picture so even when you're base building, you might want to be spot checking kind of where you're at, or if you're working with a new athlete, spot checking where they're at at some of these other things to find out exactly where those strengths and weaknesses are, where they're more developed, less developed, what you can maybe lean into more heavy and what you need to maybe be a little more cautious around, at least at the early stages. Yeah, it's, it's all a process, you know, and I think too often uh, what happens, and I'm guilty of this as anyone is like, we make it look pretty on paper. Which means like, you know, we say, oh, during this period, I'm going to focus on, you know, lactate threshold development or whatever have you pull it, pull whatever, you know, out. And that might look great, but the reality is the body is complex and we've got to be able to not only like isolate and compartmentalize, but zoom out and see the whole global picture, <laughs> which sometimes means like testing or checking like where's this athlete's strength or weakness because the other part of it and maybe this will help your audience understand is like we can't be great at all things at the same time right mm -hmm. i can't i can't have my best 400 meter time and my best 50 mile time shape be in at the exact same moment it's just impossible 
It's not how the body works. So what do we do? We make trade-offs. And what we're trying to do is not say, oh, it doesn't matter whatsoever how fast you could sprint, let's say. For a distance, it might matter a little bit. It might matter a good amount for a, a, a 1,500 or a mile. It might not matter as much for a marathon or ultra marathon, but it still matters just a little bit, right? Because mm -hmm. we got to have some gap between what we're capable of running fast and what we're capable of running steady. And my kind of view is when we zoom out and look at the global picture, what you're trying to do is not be perfect, but on everything or great or maximize everything, but like get it in the right spot for whatever the event um, you're, you're training for and your individual physiology or individual, you know, nature brings into it. So to me, I see it as kind of like the event plus the individual tells us where our kind of sweet spot kind of is. And then we kind of play around with it. But the only re only way we can figure that out is if we kind of poke, prod, test, see, see what you're good at, see what you struggle at, see what also trainability is. So the other thing on this, like, you know, you mentioned like we get stuck isolating into like, this is base, this is this. Well, for different people, they respond differently for, for various things. So for instance, myself, when I was training for the middle distance events, if I started to do some like really fast, like faster and race pace stuff, I would get a bump in fitness very quickly, right? But then it would like come down if I started doing too much of it. So if I did traditional, like, oh, I've got to get really, you know, do some 400s and just crank them, that would help for a short bit. But if I did too much, like my body kind of rebelled. Mm. So I was like a very quick responder, but not a long responder to it. So that shifts when I would do that stuff. Other things for me, for instance, it would take me a long time to build uh, kind of my, we'll call it lactate threshold or high-end aerobic abilities. So I knew that maybe, you know, it was going to take months and months and months of focusing on this, you know, more so than other things to get it to a decent spot. And every individual is going to be a, a different uh, example. The last example I'll give is outside of running, but really kind of gets this is whenever I was coaching uh, college athletes, especially in the middle distance at, at, uh, area, when we went in the weight room, like some were just like responders, like a guy could touch a weight. And he'd put on like five pounds of muscle and another guy, you could, you know, go in the weight room five days a week and it, they'd never put on any muscle and it was just their individual nature. Well, you have to take that into account on how you're programming in those stimuluses for an adaptation. Same thing applies to our various, you know, components of endurance training. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And uh, another kind of component to that too, is just like, measuring and what we're measuring, how we're measuring it. And I think this is just a topic that just continually evolves as more and more devices kind of pop up into the, the world of running where um, we're certainly not at the cycling level yet with like power meters and stuff, but it seems like we're kind of trending that direction. And I'm curious, like what your thoughts are about just like measurement overkill versus getting the right amount of stuff is that kind of individual to the athlete when you're working with them too, to some degree, or is there a point, is, is there a point where you're like, okay, I need a little more data than this, regardless of how like relaxed you want to be or versus 
another one person who like you can't get off of Strava and is <laughs> hyper watching their heart rate and pace and all of the other stuff on the on their on their watch and whatnot. Yeah, you know, there's two things that come to mind. First is we pay attention to what we measure. Mm -hmm. So whatever it is we're measuring, we're going to give attention and value to it. So that means like, even if the measure is useless, we're still going to pay attention to it because like we're measuring it. So to me, that means be very deliberate and intentional on what you're measuring and making sure that it provides actual value, not just value because you're doing it. And the other thing I'd say on this, like, over measuring on I think it's highly individual and to me it comes back to it's almost like does the measurement create anxiety or dependence right so for instance I'll give the example with athletes if I told you to go run uh let's say we're going to run mile repeats and I said give me your watch for some for some athletes they'd be like okay fine I don't need my watch. I'm not going to be precise, but I'll run these in 530, right? And I'll be in the ballpark. Another athlete, if, if you take away their watch, they'll be like, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I can't do this. I need my watch. I had one, one female athlete who literally, I said, you know, put your watch to the side. She takes it off and then hides it in her short pocket. And, <laughs> and then I like see her pull it out like halfway through the rep to check her pace. And I'm like, oh my gosh, but that, that gives you an indicator of like how much like anxiety is built from mm -hmm. having the watch or not. And what we want is like, you know, probably some in that middle road where it's like someone sure it feels a little bit weird taking your watch off, but it's not the end of the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And the same thing goes for other metrics. Like if you become so dependent on it that it creates anxiety when you don't have it then you probably need to go in the other, other direction. Now on the flip side, when do you measure things? Well, when it provides valuable information that impacts your coaching or training. So if, if you have someone who, for example, is horrible at maybe getting sleep or like pushing them too hard, well, then something like HRV might be a good reminder of like, okay, I see my HRV dropped. And this athlete says, oh, it's because I only got four hours of sleep. And when I get eight hours of sleep, my HRV is, is better or whatever. The score is better. <laughs> so I guess I should make that behavioral change. What you're getting there is the importance isn't the HRV or not. It's does it lead to the behavioral change that mm -hmm. is desirable? And I think that's how we look at and utilize measurement systems is like, does it lead to positive adaptation? Or does it create that dependency and anxiety that often like leads to negative adaptation? Yeah, no, it makes sense. I have a, it's, it's kind of funny because uh, my wife, she doesn't train with a watch or use a watch at all. Uh, and she's just gotten, I mean, she has in the past, she's been running for 30 years. So it's like her understanding of efforts across the spectrum is so precise. It's funny. I'll go and do a workout with her sometimes and just like, just tell her kind of what we should be targeting. And then I'll kind of like, I won't like pace it so that I can see if she's like how accurate she can get. And it's like, it's pretty phenomenal to the point, like, I mean, she's doing ultra marathons, which I think is a little more, I mean, perceived effort is probably even more valuable in a event that has that long of duration. Cause there's so many things go wonky in terms of the data feedback yes. you're going to get when you're like beyond three hours and things like that. And, but for her, it's like, it kind of simplifies that process to a degree. Cause she just knows like, 
at the start of a race, it doesn't really matter who goes out at what pace, because I know what it feels like to run for 10 hours in a sustainable way versus 15 hours, whatever happens to be. And she can just tune that up because it's so finely tuned from just years and years of practice of that. Um, but it was interesting because during the pandemic, when all the races were canceled, she's like, well, I think maybe I'll just train for a marathon for the fun of it. Cause it's different. It'd be good to get some speed work in my legs before picking kind of whatever race is next. And then it got to a point where it's like, yeah, I could probably use a little bit of data here and there. And I was like trying to guide her. So I'm like, yeah, I could use some of that data too to help kind of steer the direction as to what we do next or how we do things. You know, I love that because it's like use the data when it's useful. And then like when you feel good about it, like you don't have to. And the other thing I'd point out there is that your wife's ability, like it is a skill that we all can develop. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's often missing is it's not like she woke up and is magically in sync and knows the effort levels for whatever ultra pace or race or what have you. It's that she trained it by listening to her body for a really long time. And if we over rely on the data, what that does, it, you know, is it prevents that, that learning and understanding. So that's why, you know, whenever I was coaching uh, college athletes, one of my favorite things to do was to send people out for a tempo run without a, without a watch is like an indicator of how well does this person understand how to run by feel? And you'd say, Hey, go run this effort or this pace. And if they were wildly off, that tells you like, okay, this person needs to train like that feeling and learn what it feels like. If someone's relatively close, you can say like, okay, like they're kind of like your wife. They can dial yeah. in at this effort. Like it's not a big deal. The watch isn't going to get in the way or the data isn't going to get in the way that much because like they've already developed and honed this skill. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I think um, when I'm, when I'm coaching athletes one thing i always try to share with them early on is like let's see if we can get perceived effort to be your like your most reliable guide and we're going to use these other tools to help you understand that better if you don't know it already so it's like using heart rate and like pace over duration for like a controllable environment and things like these are all great data points that I like to move to post-workout eventually so that it's something we can reflect on and kind of tease out where that stuff is. But I always feel like we've accomplished something when I can send out an athlete for like a threshold run or something like that. And it, it, even if they have a watch on, they look at it and they just, it predicts they're going what they are supposed to do. And they could just tune out to it if they needed to and be just fine. You know, I love that. And I think you're spot on. And you know, I was really fortunate in some ways, unfortunate in others, but like when you grow up outside of Houston, Texas, and you run in the summer when it's hot, humid, and horrible, yeah. <laughs> what happens is all your data points go out the window. Mm -hmm. So I remember in high school, we'd, we'd, you know, have some sort of like steady run. And if we looked at our watch, we'd be like 30 seconds a mile yeah. slower than <laughs> when it's cool. And all you do is you get depressed. So you'd mm -hmm. stop looking at your watch. And then you'd be like, oh, I'll look at my heart rate. Well, you look at your heart rate and it starts out normal, but because of the humidity and your body and ability to cool itself, like by the end, it's like near max, even though mm -hmm. you're going steady. So you had to force yourself. It almost like forced you to like hone that perceived effort. And I think that, you know, hopefully you don't have to deal with the crazy heat and humidity, but giving yourself some room to do that 
is great. And then utilize the data afterwards, as you said, as that feedback, that learning mechanism where you say, okay, this is information. It's not the dictator. And I think that's the key. Yeah. It was, it's funny. I, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, lived in Wisconsin. That's where I ran high school and college uh, track and cross country. And it was like clockwork every fall when the humidity would break, everyone's running 15 plus seconds a mile faster. And like you, you, in high school, it's like, you might knock a minute off your 5k time and yeah, everyone's like, Oh, wow. I just like hit this nice new level of fitness. Like, no, you know, you just got a better environment and it, it happened. It's, I know it's not linear, but it's a little more linear than that. <laughs> You know, I love that. My high school coach, after I was done, said the same thing is, you know, the best thing about cross country is you go from horrible, humid, you know, miserableness. And then once the weather breaks, it's like you get that PR. Yeah. And because all the kids are like, the workouts are working. Yeah. Look how much faster we get, you know, and you assign it to the work when in reality it's like, oh, the weather. But what that does is it gives you that confidence, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you, you go into the championship season being like, I'm peaking perfectly. And it's like, nah, man, the weather got better. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a perfect, like, yeah. it's a perfect spotlight on the, just the level of the level that just confidence and motivation actually plays into performance almost above and beyond a lot of this other stuff that like we think are very, very based in science. And it's like, obviously that stuff's important too, but like just the fact that like you just, you always, I remember this, like it was yesterday, like you'd hit that new standard and then you didn't run slower than that going forward because in your mind, you like, you had unlocked that, that was achieved. It was no longer this brick wall that you couldn't get through. And like so much of that, I mean, obviously the weather is a play in that specific example, but I wonder how much improvement is also after that point too. just like having that confidence boost of knowing like, Oh, when I do this work, I get this result leads to just like, you know, more PRs down the road when you've renormalized where your, where your potential is at. I think that normalization process is so important and not talked about enough. And, and we all like, we've all gone through it, right? Mm -hmm. Like <laughs> whether it's the high school, college afterwards, post-collegiate, what happens is you raise that standard and all of a sudden what's fast and what's like slow changes. It's almost mm. like that, that what is hard changes. Yeah. Well, so does what, what's fast and slow. And what happens is all of a sudden, you know, and sometimes it's like within a couple of weeks, you know, you're running mile repeats at five minute pace. And then all of a sudden your idea of slow and fast changes. And, and now 450 is normal and five minutes feels slow. And you'd be like, oh, I'd never run slower than this anymore. <laughs> and, and, you know, my athletes uh, would often tell me that they almost, you know, one of them called it like the floor gets higher, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're like, you know what, if I show up on race day and even if I feel horrible, like I still can run this because yeah. that's not that fast. And I think that's such an important shift mentally that occurs that allows us to kind of, you know, perform up to our capabilities. Yeah. That's an interesting way to look at it. Like when your bad days are still pretty good relative to your norm, then that's a level of confidence. That's hard to match. <laughs> it, it, exactly. It is. And on the flip side though, this can sometimes get in the way. So for instance, um, when you, when you set a goal that is, you know, maybe difficult, but it's, it's kind of challenging to get to sometimes it comes a barrier because you've set up the standard of like, 
this is fast, right? And we'll use it. Maybe you you say like uh, a three hour marathon. You're like, this is fast. This will get me to Boston or what have you. And you chip away, chip away. And you end up not getting it because in your mind, it's still fast, right? Mm. And part of training is convincing yourself that like that three hour marathon, like, yeah, it's hard, but like, it's not actually that fast. Like I'm capable of this. And this is where we, we want to make sure that like our goals and our perception of like what's fast or slow or what have you is working with us and not serving as a roadblock that, you know, works against us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And it's, uh, it's just like, you're, you're, you always learn the more you do it and some lessons you relearn and relearn and relearn or just need reminders of them every, every season, it seems. It, exactly. I mean, we're, we're hard headed. So even in, I've been running for, you know, years and I still make some of the same bonehead mistakes that, that, you know, I shouldn't, but that's because we're human. Yeah. Well, yeah, the running, the runner's mindset too, is just interesting because it's like, I remember I was looking into kind of the strength work research a while back and I was reading this article and they were talking about how like originally, like they, they, they got around to actually studying like strength work and how it kind of correlates with injury uh, in all sorts of sports. And it seemed like it was a slam dunk that you do strength work in all the team sports. You're going to get this relatively large injury reduction by doing so. And then they get around to looking at the runners and they didn't really necessarily see that at first. And someone comments on it's like, well, perhaps that's because when a runner becomes a little more durable, they just decide to go a little bit further or a little bit harder. So now, yeah, they can do a bigger training load, but they still take on that same injury risk because they're more durable bodies now being asked to do more versus the confines that you might get in like a specific time sport or team sport or something like that. Yeah, that's a really perceptive point. And I think there's a lot of value. There's a lot of, you know, (laughs) a lot of truth in that is that we're kind of boundary pushers, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, oh, I can now handle more training. Like, let's do more training. And we, we, we kind of get stuck in that, 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 that loop. And I think it's part of it is because it's, it's easy to quantify, right? Mm-hmm. In in other sports, it's not like you show up to the soccer pitch or the the football field and are like, "This is today's workout. I'm going to do, you know, whatever." And you can quantify it exactly. You can't because you're doing all these different drills and all these different exercises and what have you. You just know you were out on the on the field for an hour and a half or what have you. In in running, we can quantify so much everything. So often it's like, oh, I can handle more. Well, like, let's let's do more. Let's do more. Do more faster. And I think that is again, it's there's that that fine line, that balance point that we have to find where it's like, well, more isn't always better. We got to do what our body can take and what what we can adapt to. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors are my friends at LMNT Electrolytes. They have a wide range of electrolyte supplements and are currently offering listeners to this podcast a free sample pack with purchase. If you are interested in checking them out and letting them know that you came to them through here, you can go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO or to the show sponsor landing page, which is just zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Links to that are in the show notes as well. The final topic I kind of wanted to talk to you about, um, and, and we can talk about anything else you want as well, but is uh, just the kind of the gender categorization in sport 
and sport as a whole, I guess, is it gets, I think it gets a lot more interesting when you look at sport as a whole and then look at running and kind of where running has sort of categorized itself um, versus say like some other sports that are very category oriented, like wrestling or where there's weight classes and things like that. Um, Cause this topic just gets more and more important. I think as, as we continue to kind of like go along with life and things like that, but um, you had written an article, I believe for the Atlantic that just talked about just like why we have gender categorization in, in running sports specifically. And I thought you laid out like a really interesting way of like, just kind of looking at like just the, the history of the, of women's sport, how it's evolved in terms of like the gap between female and male biology you used a couple examples with like the marathon and then um the olympic 800 i believe where um i mean i i had to remind myself about the olympic 800 that that was that much of a just a goofy kind of like weird story that dictated years and years of, of regulations where they had like what was it the somebody like commented on how women were just passing out exhausted after this 800 meter race. And then that kind of dictated it not being allowed in the Olympics for a couple of decades or something like that. Um, exactly. Yeah. And then the marathon one is, I think just a perfect picture of kind of what happens is like you remove the barriers, remove the barriers and the, the negative expectations with running marathons specific to women. And over the course of a few decades, we see that gap close, 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 close. But then inevitably on all these different running based sports, we hit this spot right around 10% where it's like now both groups just gradually progress at like a much more kind of expected rate versus a huge jump. And it seems to kind of always hit that spot, regardless of whether it's a long endurance event or, you know, the sprinting stuff or anything like that, which is kind of like a clear biological difference between the male and the female biology, in my opinion. So then it's like, we have that information, what do we do with it? And it's, it, it becomes kind of a topic of, is it something that we can suppress if we need to? Is it something where we just need to completely overhaul the way we categorize sports in general, add third categories, fourth categories, fifth categories? What, what, what are your thoughts at this point in time with um, <laughs> that topic as a whole? Oh, oh man. Let's get controversial. Um, no, in <laughs> actuality, and I'm glad you laid all that out because this is a it's one of those topics that can um, get a lot of emotions and, and rightfully so in a, in a lot of cases. But my point in that article and my point is I think we have to start with accepting like the reality of the performance differential bi biology. And, and you laid it out there, but to expand on that is regardless of when you look at any sport that is essentially, you know, uh, easy to classify in terms of like outcomes like running or cycling or lifting weights or like something very general like that, you that that gap exists, like from the best of the best male to the best of the best female, there is a gap and you know, way back in the marathon example, I, there was actually some research studies when women got that barrier to come down, they were improving a lot faster than, than men. And there were some studies that were like, women are closing the gap. They're going to pass. They, yeah. <laughs> they're going to pass. And what happened is that didn't happen, not because the women didn't try or like weren't training hard enough, but because there's different biological capacities <laughs> that contribute to performance that just happened to make it where men on 
you know, at the highest level are about roughly 10%, you know, faster. And that, that, that isn't sociological, anything like that. Like it's, it's, we're very clear on this is like a biological uh, differential based on the contributors to performance. We could look at lungs, VO2 max, all that, that good stuff. Um, <laughs> but what that, that, that's really important because I think we have to start from there. Because if we don't acknowledge that, then we're not talking on the same playing on the same level playing field. What we need to do is start and say there's a real differential that you know can't be overcome. You can't say you can't you know magically wave your wand and give Allison Felix like an ability to compete against Usain Bolt. It's not going to happen. So what we need to do is acknowledge that, and then we can have the conversation on so what, which is the second part that you just said. What does that mean? Well, I think we can hold two things at once. We can hold that <laughs> there's a biological difference in terms of performance, which means if we got rid of all categories, women wouldn't have professional sport because they'd be ranked, I don't know, in track, maybe like uh, 400, 500 um, in the world or what have you with their times. So that's not fair. That's not a good thing. I think women's sport obviously brings a lot of very good things to the world um, and a very and, and is an amazing outlet. So I think we obviously need that. So we can't just say get rid of all categories. Um, <laughs> instead, we have to ask, okay, how do we balance this reality of need for women's categories to allow the, uh, to allow women's sport to flourish, to show what they can do? all that good stuff. Well, at the same time, acknowledging that, you know, there is a need for inclusion in, in what I'll call edge cases, not edge cases to minimize because, but if you look at the overall population, it's a very small number of, of people, whether we're looking at uh, intersex or DSD athletes or trans athletes or what have you, that population is relatively small. Um, and I think, you know, I don't have the great solution for it. It could be adding other categories, like using the uh, um, uh, Paralympics model. So one of uh, my good friends kind of brought this up is they've like Paralympics solves this by having different standards and different categories that allows athletes to compete because they realize we want people to compete. So we're going to create venues for them. That's a possibility. There's other possibilities saying like, well, where does this matter? I've heard the argument, this matters at the elite level. It matters at maybe, you know, the competitive level, which could include winning a state championship or something. But does it really make a difference if, if all men and women are running together at the, you know, Joe Blow invite in the fourth division of the JV category? I mean, you could argue it does. You could argue it doesn't. I don't know. There's more nuance there, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, so again, I don't have the answer, but I think we, what's getting in the way is we can't have these conversations mm -hmm. because we, we, we can't even agree with the first part that say, Hey, these biological performance differences are there. Like we can't just wave a wand and say, Oh, they're sociological. Let's ignore them. Instead, we have to wrestle with the hard thing, which the wrestling with the hard thing is we want competitive balance and fairness and allow women to flourish. But we also want sport is great because it gives everyone an opportunity to compete and to be who they are and, and express their 
talent, fitness, determination, all that stuff. So how do we make sure we have some space for people to do that? while also protecting, you know, the, the competitive space um, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think what you said is uh, very well put. And yeah, it's like, it's a, it's a, it seems to be an issue that sort of has like, since we, as far as I can tell, kind of started without acknowledging to some degree, or maybe we acknowledged it originally, but then kind of pivoted from it in some scenarios to the point where we have governing bodies, like putting down protocols that uh, are based in presumably some research, but like very little research because it just isn't a lot of it. And it's not necessarily clear. So we're extrapolating things out, or, or maybe it's kind of like what we were saying before when, with the topic of like, we find something we can measure. We own in on that. We watch that. It's like, we decided testosterone was the thing to measure. So we just zone in on that. If we can suppress testosterone, we're good to go. Cause we're not going to consider anything else. And the more you kind of unpack that, the more kind of, I guess, uh, the more like, uh, things that kind of contradict one another start popping up. Because like, when I think of just like, just the, the, the doping control situation with sport, it's like, if someone gets popped with testosterone, they're looking at a four year suspension. So um, what do you think? Maybe 50% of the people think that it should be a lifetime ban versus a four year suspension. But if you believe a four, a lifetime suspension for some testosterone usage is based in science because they had, they maintain some of that physiological advantage from that round of testosterone that they use or EPO that they used or whatever it was that they were using. Um, it's made, it's really hard to make the argument backwards the other way that where like you have biological male puberty, it's like, you can't reverse that either. So like, if we're looking at lifetime bans versus four, like, where do you draw this? Like, so then, so then I guess what I'm trying to say is, and we come up with these regulations of like, you need one year of um, testosterone suppressing hormones in order to be able to compete. And then that's like, then people ask, well, why is it one year for that? And four years for this, do these even matches as apples to oranges? And then it just becomes like, I think we end up arguing about things that are sort of like besides the point to some degree, instead of actually trying to address the situation, the way you described it, which is here's what we know, what do we need to do to change in order to try to make this work versus leaving another group completely out. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up the testosterone example, because that was a attempt, I think, at a compromise of a, a simple solution to a complex problem mm -hmm. without a lot of research and data behind it, where they realized, oh, um, <laughs> and, the, and the basic gist of it is this. So if we think, again, I'm going to give a basic example. If we think, okay, there, maybe there's a 10% gap or whatever. Um, well, if we suppress uh, testosterone, how far does that get us down? Well, maybe to 6%, maybe 5%. It also varies based on individual, mm -hmm. right? And in sport, right? So some sports is changing because, you know, um, if in a, uh, <laughs> and we know this, right? We know that like different events or sports are dependent on different biological contributors. So one testosterone might matter a lot more taking away impacts it a lot more another like maybe economy or efficiency or whatever matters a lot more so for example in i don't know um archery like the gap between males and females is very small generally because like it's not a sport that's de dependent on on physical strength whatever there's a little strength in pulling the bow i guess but it's more it's not dependent on the things that separate 
male and female performance as well. So I think that's where we get into this big complexity here. And sometimes we get lost in that. And we just need to zoom out and be like, okay, here's here's the reality in most situations. Like what actually what actually matters? What are we trying to do? And have that conversation. And instead, often we get caught up in the the, the kind of, you know, testosterone, I, I, I feel like arguments, because there was also the argument, you know, some scientists or sociologists made the argument that like testosterone doesn't matter as much as we think it does. And you're just like, are we really going to have this conversation? Like, have you paid attention to sport ever? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Time to give like, Lance his seven tours back. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> right. But, but like that's those, we get lost in these arguments instead of having the productive, I think, dialogue over the substantial stuff that actually, actually matters. Right. That actually is like, okay, we've got these realities. Like I understand, you know, both or all sides of this equation as be best I can. Like, how do we sort through the messy middle and come up with something that like is generally fair and like tackles things to a large degree? And it might, as I said, vary between high level sport and rec mm -hmm. league, whatever. Like, that's the other thing is, you know, if you want to show up to the July 4th, you know, neighborhood 5k run, like it, you probably should, you should probably be able to sign up for whatever you want. Or, or whatever, because like in the grand scheme of things, like who cares if you win a trophy and this and this, and I might get some argument on that, but the point is there's different levels of where performance matter and where maybe just making people happy and like supporting them matters as well. And you just got to take that stuff into consideration. Yeah. I mean, you're right. If it's like the, the, the neighborhood have fun 5k, it's like, well, it's called the have fun 5k. Let's just all go and have fun versus right. yeah, the, the NCAA championships or the Olympics. These are two different com conversations to some degree. Um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, what you, what you said makes, makes sense. And it's like, yeah, I think getting to a point where one, we recognize that there's going to be differences between sports Therefore, we may need different solutions and different. And this is where I think the IOC maybe was right when they, I think they stepped back originally and they just said, no, we're going to kind of punt. The, it, it almost looked like a cop out at first, but yeah. like when you actually think about it, they, they really didn't have much more of a choice in terms of kicking it to the different federations and say, hey, everyone come up with your own protocol because what works for weightlifting is probably not going to be the answer for running and what's for running is probably not going to be the answer for um, for target shooting or whatever. So, um, that part is, seems like it was maybe a step in the right direction, but, uh, yeah, we have to get past the, the, the yelling at one another or the, right. or the it, bringing it, up of the topic, you could cut the tension with a knife in the room type of a scenario. It, exactly. And I gotta say, like, you know, I wrote that piece for the Atlantic and I had, gosh, I don't know, five or six friends read it. And go over it and over and over it because, like, <laughs> I want to be very clear and almost very narrow on the point. And I did that because I realized and I talked to others who had just got lambasted for even going into this, saying anything in this field, even if they were all on the science. And even that, I got a bunch of, you know, DMs and emails and whatever calling me all sorts of crazy stuff. And that's fine. It doesn't matter. Um <laughs> But that's part of the problem mm -hmm. is my, if you read that Atlantic piece, like 
there's nothing nothing controversial in it. Like I essentially outlined performance differences are exist. This is what it is. I have no, I don't know what the solution is, but we've got to acknowledge this so we can wrestle with the actual difficult thing. But even in that, like I got a lot of like, you know, negative feedback and, and a lot of positive feedback. But the problem is when controversial things like this occur is we got to be able to have the conversations without yelling, screaming, or calling people names or like insinuating they're the worst person in the world. Cause that's the only way we can get a, a, a decent solution because dialogue between all sorts of parties is how you get solutions. And I think a large part of this problem is that we can't have the dialogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely interesting. And it, when I brought it up publicly in the past, I think like, you know, my experience has been fairly similar. Like I didn't write an article for a major publication, so you probably saw a lot more than I did, but um, just the bringing up of the topic, even in casual like threads or things like that is, uh, you know, you, you can definitely tell that there's a, like a level of discomfort that just comes along with it. And yeah, we need to get past that. And then the one thing I did learn that I thought was kind of interesting, I hadn't really thought of originally when I first started, because when I first started thinking of this topic, my mind went straight to just the competition, like the fairness side of things. And like, how do we do that? And looking at it kind of more just specifically through that lens. And someone brought up to me is like, I, it, this is like a different worldview, I guess, than what I would have had, what I have. And it's just like, maybe we don't really need that. And like, is it going to, is it easier just to say like competition where we compete to see who's the best in the world? Is that something that we should just give up on so that we can be more inclusive and have it? And I, I think there's probably a lot of potential unforeseen consequences with that in terms of just like what happens if we remove competition from, from everything. But now we're onto a philosophical question, I guess. And it's like that. So that's where I sometimes I think of where I see the tension occur is you have a group of people who are all into the philosophical side of this discussion, which can get all the way to should we even do competitive sport versus just having everyone play games, essentially, I guess, which who knows what happens with the human psyche? Does it end up just evolving into competitive at some point anyway, versus like the very strict biological science that you outlined on that Atlantic article very nicely? Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that's, you know, it, it's, <laughs> it really is coming at it from different worldviews. And I try and appreciate that is we, we come at it probably through a competitive standpoint, because like, that's what we grew up doing sure. in sport. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of the other uh, individuals and the very smart people, they make comments on stuff. And I, I, I can tell I'm like, oh, like you didn't come up through the competitive nature yeah. or the competitive sport. So like, you don't understand X, Y, and Z. And similarly, like I probably, and I certainly don't understand some of the, the culture around maybe just, you know, just do sport, show up, like no need to compete or what have you just run your local fun run or what have you. Like, I understand that a little bit, but I understand it better than 18 year old Steve, but probably not as well as someone who like, that was their defining experience of sport. And like, it's worth hearing those value or those different sides and values and all that stuff. But at, at, at the end of the day, I think we have to acknowledge again, I say this a lot, acknowledge reality that like, we're not going to fundamentally like change sport, right? They're like from competing to like, just show up and have fun. It's just not going to happen in American culture, at least.
No, probably so, the world culture for that. The matter. world culture, yeah. The Olympics like, are there for a reason. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's just it is what it is, right? And that that kind of gets me to we have to kind of acknowledge that and get to points where it's like, okay, this is what it is. The Olympics are there. Like it matters. We're still doing it. I mean, look at sports like football or boxing or whatever. They're incredibly damaging and violent in yeah. a lot of cases, but we still do them and love them and support them. And in, in a lot of people, and you could make the argument like we shouldn't play football because it, you know brain damage. And maybe a hundred years into the future that might be the case, but for right now, like that's not. We're not going to change that. So. Instead, we have to like focus on reality, which is like, okay, sport matters, is competitive, we get it, winning or losing like matters in certain avenues, fairness matters in a lot of avenues. So how do we balance those things out with the, the problem we're presented? Mm -hmm. No, it makes sense. And uh, when you said like, we're not getting rid of comp competitive sport anytime soon, my mind immediately went to, I just saw the other day, there's there's I didn't even know this existed until recently. I think the UFC just partnered with it, and that's why it's getting more like more eyeballs on those. There's this like a guest sport called Power Slap. Have you seen any of that? Oh, I just saw that <laughs> show up on on Twitter. I think it's like a you you just think of just like the last decade or so <laughs> of where the NFL has just basically like bent over backwards at this point to try to make sure that they don't get nailed with like. Um, and part of this is their fault too, but it's just like, you know, they're trying to kind of like evolve that sport to the point where now they don't have a situation where all their former athletes are dying incredibly early and have all the kinds of traumatic brain issues and things like that. And then here, here on the other side is this sport where you're literally just winding up and slapping a person straight in the face, no defense. Like the, the, I, the whole goal is that they don't try to stop you from slapping them. I was just thinking to myself, I was just like, okay, well, if, if, if people are willing to do that, like yeah, we're not stopping it anytime soon, as far as I can tell. <laughs> no, that's a great point. I mean, it's it's not. So I think, again, it's like, you just got to acknowledge that and, and have that conversation, figure out things the best way forward. Yeah, well, Steve, uh, thanks a bunch for being generous with your time. Before I let you go, first, if there's anything you want to bring up or share, we can certainly do it. But I do want to make sure folks have a chance to find out where they can access any of your content books and podcasts and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, thanks so much for this conversation. I, I loved all the, the, the tangents and different places we went. It's fun to have, have conversations like this. Um, you can check out my books, uh, do hard things, signs of running all the others, anywhere you, you buy books, Amazon, all that stuff. Um, <laughs> and then on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Steve Magnus, and then you can see all my stuff at stevemagnus.com, which will link to everything else I do. Perfect. Well, thanks again, Steve. Thanks so much, Zach. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. -on -one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers 
all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a Strength Athletes Guide to Endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.